25th of February 2022, a day after the Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the so-called Special Military Operation against Ukraine, a message appeared on a Darknet website. The Conti team is officially announcing a full support of Russian government. If anybody will decide to organize a cyber attack or any war activities against Russia, we are going to use our all possible resources to strike back at the critical infrastructures of an enemy. This website, only accessible through the Tor browser, was run by a cyber criminal group that had become known as the Conti Ransomware Group. Before this message, they'd spent 18 months rampaging across the internet, causing untold damage and raking in hundreds of millions of dollars. But this message marked a defining moment. Welcome to Deep Dive, the global initiative against transnational organized crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is the rise and fall of the Conti Ransomware Group. So for all the ransomware actors are like, oh no, we don't deploy in hospitals. That was a rogue affiliate. Well, too goddamn bad. You're the one that's doing bad things. It quickly became apparent that this was on another level entirely. And it was on a level that, that I think no one in Ireland had ever seen before. In May of 2022, the U.S. government offered up a reward of $15 million for information on the group leading to either their identification or the conviction of members involved. If you want to refuse the payments to pay Conti Ransom, Conti will not only take your most important files from you, but also exploit and publish them using Conti's website or sell them directly to your competitors. We know that this wallet is, you know, potentially a owned by an illicit actor, where did the funds come from? You're going to have 80 different origin stories instead of one. The social engineering side of things is so, so important that, that we are aware of it as staff, because like you say, it's a massive part of the cybercriminals arsenal. They know how to manipulate people. We know these groups. We basically been with them for years, looking at them, learning from them. There's not an admiration, but there's a respect. On a sense on the adversary. Let's start by going back a year before that message was shared to the eighteenth of March, twenty twenty one. An employee of the Irish Health Service Executive, the HSE, was at one of thousands of workstations across the sprawling network. Now, the HSE is a publicly funded healthcare system, kind of like the NHS in the UK. And for over a year, medical staff had battled COVID and a few glimmers of light were beginning to shine as just a few days earlier, the Irish government had announced that restrictions would be gradually eased. The employee noticed an email It had been sent a couple of days before and it had an attachment to download, a Microsoft Excel file. The email looked legitimate enough for the employee to click download. The hackers were in. A couple of days before St. Patrick's Day, I believe, a phishing email was sent out by the cyber attackers. This is Conor Gallagher, the crime and security correspondent of the Irish Times. My understanding was that the HSE wasn't a specific target. You know, these emails would have been sent to a very broad range of, of people. And just unfortunately, the HSE was unlucky enough to, to get hit. Someone 
a HSE worker, presumably, got this email, opened up the attachment, a Microsoft Excel Office file, which was downloaded into the system. You see, this Excel sheet contains something called a malicious macro. Now, a macro is there to automate common tasks on Microsoft Office applications. For example, keystrokes or mouse actions. It's to make things more efficient. But this process can also be used to infect your device. This HSE workstation was now patient zero. Let me turn to Burke Alberak, a threat intelligence analyst within the PTI, which is the ProDaft threat intelligence team. After gaining initial access to the victim, they often deploy a Cobalt Strike or similar software like System BC, which is used for SOX proxy malware to perform lateral movement and privilege escalation. And they use Dazelab or PSNG to look for vulnerabilities in the system or points where they can escalate their privileges. And they can also scan the system with tools like Seatbelt and AD Finds, but they collect the credentials with tools like Mimikatz and GPP Password, and they can even have a cracking station where they crack these hashes and they dump the data there. And after scanning the network with tools such as router scan and bluetooth for lateral movements and before ensuring persistence and running to ransom, they try to infect other devices in the inner network. And they use applications such as Atera and Anydesk to ensure persistence in the system. And finally, to extract the victim data, they send the data to their own exploitation servers with the arc-long config they have prepared beforehand. And this is the finish of the last part of the infection cases. Now, Burke is a hunter. He's been tracking groups like Conti for years, so we'll be hearing a lot more from him later. The whole point in getting someone to download this initial bit of malware is to gain a foothold. And that is patient zero in this case. And from there, install a persistence mechanism, which means that even if you reboot the computer, the malware remains running, undetected. From here, the hackers install other malware that allows them to move around the network. And so we heard from Burke just before about a bunch of tools the hackers use. But let's just focus on one because it's important for later, and that's Mimikatz. Mimikatz was dubbed by Wired as one of the world's most powerful password stealers. Its job is to jump from computer to computer, hoovering up credentials and passwords, hoping to eventually land on that special someone who has admin privileges. It was an important component in the huge NotPetya attack in 2017, a wiper malware masquerading as ransomware that spread through systems in Ukraine and beyond. Combined with the infamous self-propagating worm exploit Eternal Blue, this attack caused billions of dollars worth of damage. Anyway, back to the attack on the HSE. It's been two weeks since that Excel attachment had been downloaded. So what happened next? Well, nothing. This is known as the dwell time, and in this case, it lasted a lot longer than normal. Here's Connor. This was the ticking time bomb, which sat in the system for eight weeks, and it kind of gradually gained access to the system and to user accounts and just spread its tentacles throughout the, the vast computer system of the HSE. And what's also really concerning was that the HSE had antivirus software, which 
did its job to an extent. It did detect malicious activity uh, on, on this computer back in March, but bafflingly, this antivirus software was set to monitor mode. So it was set to kind of look for activity, but not to do anything about it. Until suddenly, on the 7th of May, things began to escalate. This was the first time highly privileged accounts were used. Mimikatz had done its job. More malware was installed on Patient Zero and further reconnaissance and network compromise was carried out. And even the day before the attack, the HSE's contractor in the cybersecurity area got in touch with, with the HSE management and said that there was you know, threats across the system, but by then it was far too late. At 1am on the 14th of May, almost two months after that Excel file had been downloaded, the hackers released the ransomware. At first it seemed maybe not routine, but maybe not a matter of massive concern. We have had cyber attacks on state institutions before, and they really haven't had too much impact on kind of day-to-day life. But it quickly became apparent that this was on another level entirely. And it was on a level that, that I think no one in Ireland had ever seen before, that it, it was basically a shuttering of HSE's entire digital operations. It's a very large agency, which has many, many employees, which runs public health care in the country. So it's an incredibly important institution. And for its computer systems to go down is obviously incredibly serious and could very easily result in mass casualties possibly and also bear in mind that this was happening in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic so it seemed like a perfect storm and indeed it was a perfect storm. All of your files are currently encrypted by Conti Strain. As you know, if you don't, just Google it. All of the data has been encrypted by our software cannot be recovered by any means without contacting our team directly. If you try to use any additional recovery software, the files might be damaged, so if you are willing to try, try it on the data of the lowest value. To make sure that we really can get your data back, we offer you to decrypt two random files completely free of charge. You can contact our team directly for further instructions through our website. At this point, they kindly provide two addresses, one that can be accessed through Tor, and they even provide a link to the Tor project where you can download the Tor browser. And the Tor browser allows users to access what's called an Onion site. Now, anyone who has visited a dark website knows what an Onion site address looks like. But for those that haven't, the Conti website started with Conti Rec, followed by the characteristic load of random letters and numbers. But the dark web isn't for everyone, so the second address was accessible through a normal web browser, and it was called contirecovery.best. But let's be under no illusions. This message also carried a warning. You should be aware. Just in case, if you try to ignore us. We've downloaded a pack of your internal data and are ready to publish it on our news website if you do not respond. So it will be better for both sides if you contact us as soon as possible. So this is an example of the message that was delivered to victims after being infected by Conti ransomware. Now to start communication with Conti required a code, and that was found at the base of each individual ransom note. This is all listed in a report on Conti from the cybersecurity company Prodaft in 2021. 
So armed with your special ID, you head over to the, and this is totally true, the Conti Recovery Service. And from here, you upload your ransom note with its unique ID, because of course, we can't have two ransomware victims being mixed up now, can we? And then you start communicating with one of Conti's customer service representatives. They aim to make it easier because, of course, they want to make it easier so they get paid. You know, it's a thought-out process. This is Jake Moore, the Global Cybersecurity Advisor at ESET. If they don't have that customer service, they might lose out, not because they weren't wanting to pay, because they couldn't. They know they're going to get negotiated with. They know that that's why they're going to start nice and high up. They definitely do the research on how much you can afford. They're not going to go to a charity and say, £10 million to get all your data back. The charity's going to go, we can't even get that. So they know what they're doing. They know where to start. And they then, if they do hit a company that goes, I haven't even got a cryptocurrency wallet, then at least they're going to be there to help them. So they get their money at the end of the day. From this point, they reiterate what they have, that it can't be decrypted, the cost of the ransom, but also highlight that once a payment has been made, which of course is in cryptocurrency, the decryptor key will be handed over. But remember, this is the Conti recovery service. So alongside the decryptor key, they can also provide security tips to avoid breaches in the future. I mean, the irony. But behind this faceless yet attentive customer service is a consortium of cyber criminals. And like any other businesses, there are differences of opinion. Check out this exchange between two members of Conti. The user, Rishayev, wrote to another user called Stern. Look at the correspondence. If you didn't give the go-ahead, then I'm issuing a decryptor to this clinic. But we agreed not to touch the medical sector. So Rishayev, at a later date, had changed his name to Cyber Gangster. And he was firing off messages to another person called Mango. He is a up He then me that he agreed with you to the hospital and now he put the hospital again this is disrespect two times i told him that we do not touch the medical sector now mango was the group manager he confronts the person being complained about dollar and says that he is more problems than good and that everyone complains about you and gets angry before admonishing dollar for damaging the reputation of conti by targeting hospitals now, I'm not sure this exchange actually relates to the HSE attack, but the point is that the targeting of hospitals, or the medical sector, as Cyber Gangster calls it, was nothing new to Conti. They attacked hundreds of medical facilities, mainly in the US and Canada. Indeed, one member wrote in 2020 about attacking clinics in the US by saying, there will be panic, 428 hospitals. I don't give them any credit for saying we don't attack hospitals because I know how many hospitals have been hit with ransomware. This is Alan Liska, a threat intelligence analyst at Recorded Future and leading expert in the study of ransomware. You mentioned the Irish Health Service is, a, is sort of a great example. Some member of Conti or some Conti affiliate was in that network for two months before deploying the ransomware. That was two months they had to decide not to deploy the ransomware against the largest health service in Ireland, right? And they chose to do it anyway. And so Conti can make a great show of, oh, no, we don't go after our hospitals. Here's your decryption key. But I'm sure you've seen the pictures of how they had to call in the Irish National Guard to help rebuild the network. 
giving somebody a decryption key after you've deployed the ransomware doesn't mean that, oh, great, the network is back to normal. It is still months and months, if not years, of recovery time getting the network back up and running after it's been deployed. So for all the ransomware actors are like, oh no, we don't deploy in hospitals. That was a rogue affiliate. Well, too goddamn bad. You're the one that's doing bad things in general. So you don't get to have any credit at all for saying we don't go after hospitals. I just, I have no sympathy for that argument or for their fake morals, I guess. This is a fair argument from Alan. Their morality does seem somewhat paper thin. If you look at the recent State of Ransomware 2023 white paper from the cybersecurity company Sophos, it was lower and higher education that were targeted the most from ransomware. I'd like to see the moral justification behind that. And the medical industry still gets frequent attacks. Just a few days ago, a hospital in Spring Valley, Illinois had to close due to a ransomware attack. Now, with the HSE attack by Conti, Closer inspection of the figures shows the true cost of the damage, and that cost is long-lasting. Here's Conor Gallagher again from the Irish Times. 4,000 locations, 54 hospitals, and 70,000 computers were affected. About 80% of the HSE systems were encrypted, and 700 gigabytes worth of data, including extremely personal health records, were stolen. I mean, think about, I said to you that the HSE is kind of like the, the NHS. I mean, the HSE is the primary healthcare provider for the majority of virus people, let's say. So they hold really, really sensitive information, potentially embarrassing information, but just, you know, basic information you know that people don't want it to get out there so this was really really worrying development and as i said the effect on the network was almost total pwc were hired by the hse to investigate the sequence of events that led up to the full attack on its network and this report goes into granular detail reading it reminds me of the quote by scottish philosopher thomas reed a chain is only as strong as its weakest link and when it comes to cybercrime, that weak link is so often a person. Cybercriminals know this, which is why social engineering is such an important part of their playbook. Here's Jake from ESET. The social engineering side of things is so, so important that, that we are aware of it as staff. Because like you say, it's a massive part of the cybercriminals arsenal. They know how to manipulate people. The psychology that goes on involved, it's incredible. I'm always interested in how the criminals are using that psychology to force people to do something like you say that they not normally would do. I've tested police forces and I've seen superintendents and chief inspectors clicking on things that they shouldn't. But yeah, it's about people that we need to work on because there are so many of them. According to cybersecurity company Proofpoint, most cyber attacks can't succeed unless someone falls for them. And this is true. But I think it's important not to blame the individual. Companies and institutions have a collective responsibility. Through the training of staff, ensuring their systems and networks are backed up and up to date. They should also be regularly tested for vulnerabilities. But even then, it's never a guarantee. Fundamentally, it's vitally important to listen to the security professionals, listen to the experts who spend every day investigating and studying this phenomenon. A moment ago, we heard an exchange between a couple of Conti members about the targeting of the medical sector, Cyber Gangster and Mango. 
And although that conversation likely doesn't correspond to this attack, a week after the ransomware attack on the HSC had begun, suddenly Conti released a decryption key, even though it was reported that no ransom was given. Here's Conor Gallagher from the Irish Times. Really surprising, yeah, and, and kind of fascinating as well, because it, it kind of drove home the point that you're not dealing with this monolithic, you know, incredibly smart, incredibly sophisticated, cold, you know, logical group of people. You're dealing with a, a group of criminals who have competing interests and competing motives who disagree with each other fundamentally on, on several different ways. And that, in part at least, was the reason why we got the encryption key. So we got this decryption key, or the, the government got this decryption key a couple of weeks after the attack, which allowed, which, which, which worked, you know, it, and it was viewed with suspicion and it was tested thoroughly in a kind of a sterile environment. But it did work and it, it did massively speed up the process of unlocking the computer systems. The return of the HSE decryptor was unusual for sure. But don't let this cloud your idea about the reality of these attacks. It's extortion, in every sense of the word. There are no nuances involved in this respect. They are getting money by force or threats. It's pure criminality and it's no different to the gangs extorting people in neighbourhoods around the world. The reason I say this is because these groups know that some businesses will back up their systems which is why they exfiltrate sensitive data, because it gives another opportunity or an additional opportunity to extort their victims. That's why we've heard of double, triple and even quadruple extortion by ransomware gangs. And Conti was an early adopter of the double extortion technique. Here's Burke Albarak from Prodaft. Double extortion has become, to the Conti ransomware, groups a new favorite sales tactic because if you want to refuse the payments to pay Conti ransom, Conti will not only take your most important files from you, but also exfiltrate and publish them using Conti's website or sell them directly to your competitors. And triple extortion is different because in a triple extortion, you not only to do attackers demand payment from the initially compromised company, but they also demand payment from those who may be affected by the leaking of the company's data. And triple extortion can also involve additional attacks and launched against the original target if they refuse to pay the ransom. For example, if a company has been able to restore from backups and they are not negotiating, the threat actors may initiate the distributed denial of service attacks to apply additional pressure. For the HSE, the initial attack cost Irish taxpayers 100 million euros and it took a sizable mobilization of manpower from private cybersecurity experts to the Angada Shikona, the Irish police force, as well as military personnel, to get the systems back up and running. By September 2021, it was back to 95%. That's four months after the ransomware was detonated. And remember, these were hospitals during COVID being attacked. And yes, I understand the strategic side to this. But this ransomware attack had very real consequences for people. Healthcare workers lost access to patient records and lab results. 513 patients had their radiotherapy interrupted, including those who were undergoing radiotherapy at the time of the attack. These departments had to be closed. 
this may have resulted in things like cancers being missed or, or serious diseases. So it's maybe there's people who would have been able to get treatment earlier. It's it does, So that's one of those things that's impossible to know. And then the legal issue. So 32,000 letters have been sent out by the, the HSE to people who have had their data stolen in the attack. That's expected to increase further. 520 people actually had their data leaked by the hackers. And this was kind of a, the hackers did this to show they were serious, you know, as in to give the government a taste of what they were capable of, even though they actually never ended up releasing the main tranche of, of data that they had. But those people are also likely, the, the 520 are going to take court cases, or some of them at least, because of the, the HSE's failure to, to protect their data. So yeah, it's going to be very, so, you know, it's going to be costly. Beyond the 100 million euros for the attack itself, the upgrading of systems to guard against future attacks is estimated to be around 700 million euros, and the cost of upcoming legal challenges will likely add significantly more. But anyone who was forced to miss an appointment where a serious condition could have been diagnosed, caught, and treated earlier, that is the true cost. These are not victimless crimes. So we've looked at the huge attack on the HSE, but we still haven't really talked about who Conti are. Conti was probably the most well-known gang, in part uh, due to its predecessor, Ryuk, which was responsible for some of the most high-profile and costly ransomware attacks from 2018 through 2020. This is Selena Larson, Senior Threat Intelligence Analyst and Discarded Podcast co-host at the cybersecurity company Proofpoint. They really went after schools, local governments, hospitals, but a lot of some of this big game hunting, large organizations that would typically have a high payout. When Conti took over around 2020, they really continued this high profile, big game hunting ransomware operations. There, there were some estimates that their payouts in 2021 totaled at least $180 million. Conti was not the only major ransomware player, there certainly were a number that were just doing big game hunting operations, but it's definitely among the most costly and high profile. And I think a great way to just show how impactful they were was in May of 2022, the US government offered up a reward of $15 million for information on the group leading to either their identification or the conviction of members involved. Now, when the US Department of State offered this reward under its Transnational Organized Crime Rewards Program for information on Conti, they revealed that, according to the FBI, there had been over 1,000 victims over a two-year period ending in January 2022. And that's because ransomware as an industry has been booming. Of course, I'm sure most people have heard of attacks like Colonial Pipeline in the US or the recent Move It hack by the Klopp ransomware group. In reality, it's hard to gauge the true extent of the ransomware industry, but blockchain data platform Chainalysis say that in 2020 and 2021, ransomware attackers received over $1.5 billion from victims, but that the true totals are much higher. The numbers they provide are from cryptocurrency addresses identified as controlled by ransomware attackers. In 2021, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, identified around 5.2 billion in outgoing Bitcoin transactions, potentially tied to the ransomware payments. And this analysis only covered a two to three year period and only the top 10 most common ransomware variants. 
Ransomware has come a long way from the so-called AIDS Trojan on a floppy disk arriving in the post in the late 80s. Today it's a professional business known as Ransomware as a Service. Here's Alan Liska from Recorded Future. The way the Ransomware as a Service model works is you rent out your infrastructure to other threat actors that are interested in carrying out ransomware but don't have the ability to build their own ransomware. So you say, here, you go ahead and use our ransomware infrastructure. We'll give you your own executable. You go ahead and deploy the ransomware however you're going to deploy it. On the back end, we will take care of the negotiations with the victims for you. We'll handle the payment, and then we will launder the money and then give you your cut. So essentially, it's like multi-level marketing, but for bad guys. And the thing about ransomware as a service is not only has it allowed threat actors who wanted to get into ransomware but didn't have the technical skills to get in there, it also has made ransomware a much, much bigger business because now instead of 15, maybe 30 victims a year, you can do 300, 400, 1,000 victims a year because basically it becomes a force multiplier. And it built up a whole list of supporting services for ransomware now. So we see things like initial access brokers really take off, which are the people who gain the initial access and then turn it over to the ransomware groups. We see the the demand for money launderers. We see the demand for translators. So there, there's these all of these other businesses that have sprung up in the last few years in support of ransomware, largely driven by the ransomware as a service model. Ransomware as a service has been so effective that according to FinCEN, the first half of 2021 groups earned 590 million US dollars. Cybersecurity company Sophos recently released its State of Ransomware 2023 paper and revealed that the average ransom payment had almost doubled from around 800,000 US dollars to over 1.5 million. As Alan said, ransomware as a service allows hundreds, potentially thousands of attacks and Conti were just one of a number of different ransomware-as-a-service groups. These are highly effective and highly profitable criminal enterprises. Here's Jake Moore from ESET. It always surprises people that these criminal groups are effectively businesses, but they have to be because they are working. They are actual companies because they're getting a job done. They need those different areas. This is exactly how a business should run, and so we shouldn't differentiate it. We shouldn't think that they are going to be any different. Do you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if they're better than some of the businesses that we talk about on a day-to-day basis. Dumb divorce, not work. They recruit pentesters, of course. They recruit guys to test active directory networks. They use the locker, Conti. I merge their IP address of Cobalt servers and type of training materials. $1,500 yes, of course they recruit suckers and divide the money among themselves, and the boys are fed with what they will let them know when the victim pays. This is the beginning of a forum post shared with Bleeping Computer, and it goes on and on because the person posting is upset, particularly talking about how much they get paid. This person's what's called an affiliate. Affiliates are really important to understanding ransomware as a service. And I guess in a traditional sense, you can look at them as associates. So they aren't officially part of a mafia or gang structure. Instead, they're a connected guy, someone who from time to time works on criminal ventures 
with the main organisation, who get a cut of course, as well as others. Think Jimmy the Gent from Goodfellas. Here's Alan Liska from Recorded Future. If I want to be an affiliate of a ransomware group, I generally have to give them some money, let's say somewhere between five and $10,000, and then I get to join their service. And then I carry out the ransomware attacks, however I'm going to carry them out using their ransomware. And at the end, I get a cut of whatever the payment is. So if a ransomware victim pays a $100,000 ransom, I'll get somewhere between seventy dollars and $90,000, depending on what I've negotiated. And then the ransomware actor the, who operates the ransomware as a service model will get the rest of the money for overhead and maintaining the service. And the nice thing is, as an affiliate, I can join multiple ransomware as a service group. So depending on the deals that are going on, depending on what's happening, depending on the network I'm in, I could deploy multiple different ransomware that kind of suits the need of a particular victim, if that makes sense. So affiliates can sometimes be clients paying for access to Conti's infrastructure, or they could be connected to the management in some way. Perhaps they've worked together before, so it's more of a joint venture. But what about Conti? What do they offer in this deal? Here's Burke from ProDaft. Actually, these facilities that allow the Conti ransomware team to grow in a short period of time, they offer a data execution server where affiliates can securely transfer data after the initial infection process and victim device encryption and decryption process that is cryptographically guaranteed after the data is transferred. Once the victim device is encrypted, they offer a negotiation chat panel where they can negotiate and a news blog where they can share victim information if the victim doesn't agree and a threat actor factor too large enough to force victims to pay. Now, reporting revealed that this affiliate of Conti was a penetration tester. They were allegedly banned for trying to poach away business to a rival service. Leaking Conti's TTPs, tactics, techniques and procedures was an opportunity to learn about how the group operated but also presented an opportunity for other cybercriminals to learn, upskill and adapt. Of course, security researchers and threat hunters are always monitoring groups like Conti, but for the wider public, this leak was our first glimpse into the inner workings of one of the most devastating and highly organised cybercriminal operations, and it showed just how professional ransomware as a service is. But also, it shows a vulnerability in the heart of that business model. Disgruntled affiliates. And so what about recruitment? How were potential employees vetted? And how are they hired? Well, in this case, it's a matter of reputation, okay? This is Juan Ignacio Nicolosi, the team leader for the threat intelligence team at ProDaft, leading many of ProDaft's high-level investigations. Big part of um, the entire environment where they recruit is going to be within the dark web in the sense of finding the places or the marketplaces or the let's talk chat groups or private chat rooms where criminal groups will actually hang out. But within this, we will talk about, it might be ramp, it might be talks, it might be private groups, it might be whatever kind of 
environment when we will be able and they will be able to evaluate the reputation of those that they're recruiting. That's the main structure, a reference model for one side and a strong username in the sense of the reputation of those that are maybe freelancers or affiliate groups eventually. So it's the same as the private sector if you, or anything, if you want to make the comparison. It depends on the reputation, the, the achievements that you have, and in some cases, the evaluation that you have, like the stars in Amazon when you buy a product, kind of like that, especially when referred to marketplace in the dark web. So it's pretty interesting the fact that they operate on the basis of quality of the people they recruit or the reference that they get from them. There are a couple of minor things to add here about recruitment. It was revealed that Conti also hired people through legitimate job sites. Of course, they gained access to the CV pool in the um, non-traditional way. But some of those hired seemingly had no idea they were working for the world's preeminent ransomware gang. To perform a ransomware attack requires a lot of tools, and it's all about gaining a foothold and delivering more malware that give the attacker different capabilities. Obviously, we can't go through each one of these individually, so rather, I want to focus on the initial access brokers, those that help get that foothold in a network. So perhaps we can start with a story. Back in January 2021, Ukrainian police released a video of a raid on an apartment, once they'd prized open the door, they entered a rather dark and dingy room where they found computers, a microserver, wires everywhere, keyboards, tablets, cell phones, gold or silver bullion, I'm not quite sure, cash, USB thumb drives and brand new external hard drives. This raid by Ukrainian cyber police resulted in two arrests in Ukraine, but it was part of a wider operation across Europe and North America called Operation Ladybird. It was targeting the cybercriminal gang behind what had become known as the king of malware, Imotet. Surhia Krupova, at the time the first deputy head of the cyber police in Ukraine, said that Imotet had caused losses of $2.5 billion since its inception as a banking trojan in 2014. But security expert and investigative journalist Brian Krebs says that that's almost certainly a very conservative number. So what was Imotet? Well, simply put, it was a botnet, perhaps one of the most impressive ever created. A botnet is a network of infected computers, and these devices are often referred to as zombie machines. And that's because they are essentially under the control of a single person or group known as bot herders. The malware allows them to send instructions and updates, you name it, directly to this horde through a command and control server. Botnets can contain not just a few computers, but potentially millions. And according to CyberNews, the infamous and highly successful banking trojan called Zeus infected 13 million devices. Huge botnets like Imotet and Zeus are worth a lot of money to the cybercriminals who created them. That's because, among other uses, they provide initial access. The unlocked gate for the cybercriminals to walk through. And that's why they rent them out. It's called Malware as a Service. Here's Burke from Prodaft. 
malware such as TrickBots, Emotats, QBots, which we know Conti and rebranded teams use, is actually an operation and process carried out by the team's initial access brokers. The aim is to access every accessible devices with various phishing attacks by adopting policies that can spread to large number of victims and then categorize the accesses obtained and infect them if they understand that money and reputation will come. And as we have seen with the Conti and other ransomware teams, the teams uh, get rid of large initial infection burden by buying or collaborating with the team to acquire accesses from here. They are using just these teams for the initial accesses. Anyway, why are we talking about the king of malware? It disappeared a couple of years ago. Well, this takedown of Imhotep, which some think originated in Ukraine, is, well, back. And it's speculated that its return was largely driven by one group, Conti. Here's Selena from Proofpoint again. Imhotep was a huge botnet. If we're talking about in just from Proofpoint's visibility, their campaigns included millions of messages. It's super high volume, just targeting everyone everywhere, very, very large botnet. And Emotet itself was a precursor to ransomware that included Conti. Emotet was always among the most common enablers of Ryuk and then Conti ransomware. And in an infection chain might actually include sort of a phishing email that leads to Emotet that then dropped TrickBot that led to the installation of Conti. And TrickBot was another malware that's in this universe or the sphere of the Conti gang. In the Conti leaks that came out in early 2022, there's actually conversations between Morse, who's in charge of Emotet, and Defender, who was part of TrickBot, a very key player of the Conti group, talking about setting up new Emotet infrastructure, as well as kind of pushing Morse to get it done faster. So there was indications that these individuals were kind of playing a role in, in that. So alongside ransomware as a service, you have malware as a service working together. According to Bleeping Computer, the Imhotep malware was so widely spread that it provided ready access for any cybercrime group to deploy their payloads and could be tailor-made for their specific requirements. So when Imhotep went down, so did that access. And so, as the story goes, Conti worked their black magic and the king of malware rose from the dead. And it's probably worth adding that Imhotep on its own has caused significant economic damage all over the world. But once the ransomware gangs began using it to deliver their own payloads, everything changed. Intel 471 recently wrote a blog and the title pretty much sums it up. Conti and Imhotet, a constantly destructive duo. Earlier in the episode, Selena from Proofpoint said that in 2021, Conti was the most successful ransomware strain, raking in about $180 million dollars. That's double its nearest competitor, Darkseid, who were behind the infamous colonial pipeline attack in the US. Now, that is a lot of money, and like any other illicit proceeds from organised crime, it needs to be laundered. And with cryptocurrency, it needs to be cashed out. It needs to be converted into what's called fiat currency, like dollars, euros, or indeed rubles. So how is this done? Well, it comes in six phases. Attack, negotiation, payment obfuscation, cash out, resourcing. So let me just walk you through the what we think of as sort of the ransomware attack cycle. It usually has six phases. 
This is Zoe Brahma, the Cyber and Information Operations Associate at the Institute for Security and Technology, a Bay Area nonprofit focused on designing solutions to the world's toughest emerging security threats. So starting with, with the first one, a ransomware attack, when a victim is ransomed, generally their data is encrypted and the victim is asked to pay a ransom in order to receive decryption keys to unlock that data or to ensure that that data is not leaked. The second step is negotiation, where the victim or an organization on their behalf negotiates the size and the terms of the payments with the threat actor. In step three, the ransom is paid. I'll note that 99% of the time, um, it's not an exact statistic, but the vast majority of the time, these payments are made in cryptocurrency. So the fourth step, obfuscation, is where threat actors work really hard to obscure the, the history of the currency that they have collected from that victim. So there's this trope that I hear a lot that cryptocurrency is anonymous, but in reality, it's actually pseudonymous, which means that while you may not have to provide a cryptocurrency company with like really detailed information about your identity, all transactions are recorded on the blockchain. And so they can be tracked by blockchain analytics companies and law enforcement and other folks, which means the identity of users is not actually totally anonymous. So obfuscation is that process of obscuring one's identity on the blockchain to make it much more difficult for folks to to track the trail of that money. The fifth step, so after actors obfuscate their money, the fifth step is going to be for them to cash it out. It is often the case that only part of the ransom payment is cashed out, and I'm, I'm, we can get into that later on. But there are a number of avenues for, for these actors to cash their funds out. Generally, they use exchanges, but the goal is to transfer that cryptocurrency back into fiat currency so that it can be spent in the traditional financial ecosystem. And then the sixth step, which is resourcing, is what happens generally to the other portion of ransomware profits, which is that it is reinvested in the business. So like any business people, these folks are reinvesting their enterprise. They are paying their associates. They are investing in new tools and services so that they can carry out another attack. So that really is what connects the two sides of that cycle, right? Because after resourcing, everything will be in place for actors to carry out their next attack. Zoe has been swimming in this ransomware payment ecosystem for some time. And so like any good researcher, she mapped it out. The whole process. It's both detailed and clear. I'll put a link to the map in the podcast notes. I'd recommend having a look at it because it highlights just how many entities are involved in this process from start to finish. I think in building this map, right, it, it became very clear that, that most folks, when they look at ransomware and other illicit uses of cryptocurrency, are only really thinking about the entities that are directly involved in the ransomware attack or the payments or that process that I just laid out. Um, but the truth is that there are so many entities involved tangentially in this process, you know, tools and services that are legitimate 
that many folks use that are also being used by these actors and, and, and building a clear understanding of all of those pieces, I felt was really critical as a first step in, in undertaking this research. The ultimate goal here, right, is to add friction to this ecosystem. And by friction, I, I mean really disruption in the end. Like, how can we make it more difficult for actors to carry out attacks and less profitable for them to do so? So in doing this mapping, we can start to piece together this network of like really disparate entities that may be able to help, right? Uh, they may not even know that they can help, but in building this map, right, I, I was really able to say, like, look at how many folks have access to really critical pieces of information. And that felt like a really important first step before I could go on to sort of outline more specific recommendations for, for disrupting this ecosystem. We've kind of covered the first aspect of a ransomware attack, so I want to jump straight into step four, and that's obfuscation. As Zoe said, the vast majority of ransomware payments are made in cryptocurrency, and every cryptocurrency transaction is recorded on a public ledger known as a blockchain. And it's important to remember that there are entire companies dedicated to analyzing this very thing. So it begs the question, how do cybercriminals launder their illicit gains? I love talking about the obfuscation and, and laundering process. I think it's it's fascinating. And there are there are a variety of ways for these actors to achieve that level of obfuscation. As you just mentioned, and as I mentioned previously, the pseudonymity of cryptocurrency is a really important piece. So the process of laundering of obfuscation is really about these actors taking any measures that they can to distance their own identity from the history of those assets. In the traditional financial ecosystem, there are a lot of money laundering techniques. The interesting thing about cryptocurrency is that there are specific tools that make laundering especially efficient, I would say. So Cryptocurrency mixers or, or tumblers are a really critical piece of that puzzle. And mixers are designed to blend the currencies, cryptocurrencies of, of many users together to obfuscate the, the origins and the owners of those funds. And in doing that, the trail gets really muddy for analysts to follow. It requires a lot more time and effort on their part. I think it, it might be useful um, for your listeners, for me to provide an example. So I was thinking about this before before I came on today, because of course there is no there's no exact analogy. But let's say you have sixty dollars, I have forty dollars. We both put our money in a mixer. The mixer will take your sixty one dollar bills and my forty one dollar bills and literally mix them together, and then you'll get your $60 back and I'll get my $40 back. But some of those individual dollars that you have will be from me and vice versa. So mixing essentially does that at scale. Obviously, it's not a perfect analogy because that's not really how cryptocurrencies work, but it achieves the same thing, right? So, so when those analysts are looking at wallets and saying, we know that this wallet is, you know, potentially um, owned by an illicit actor, where did the funds come from? you're going to have 80 different origin stories instead of one. And that's going to take a lot more time to unravel. Aside from mixers and tumblers, there are other options too. 
Regular listeners may remember in the last episode on drug use on the front line in Ukraine, we talked about this group called Himprom, who were active on a darknet market called Hydra. Now, Hydra was taken down a year ago and was incredibly popular, and some believe that that popularity was driven by its money laundering services. Another technique is known as chain hopping. The Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, have warned about this. Chain hopping is when someone uses, say, Bitcoin or Ethereum to buy another cryptocurrency, a more privacy-focused one like Zcash or Monero. Doing this at speed can make it much harder to track. Once the crypto has been laundered successfully, it can be cashed out into fiat currency, which can be used in the real world to buy physical assets. So what you just said about using money in the real world is something I want to take a moment to talk about because it is, yeah, it's it's something that I have been thinking a lot about in my research. Yeah, this may not come as a shock to you, but it's actually not very easy to use cryptocurrency in the traditional financial ecosystem at this point. Like no one is going to the grocery store and trying to pay with Bitcoin or like trying to pay their rent in cryptocurrency, at least no one that I know. And so if these actors want to spend their money, they need to cash out. And and cashing out really refers to off-chaining or converting cryptocurrency back into fiat currency to spend. This is generally accomplished by VASPs, which are virtual asset service providers or exchanges, which we touched on earlier. And in both cases, the funds are transferred from a cryptocurrency wallet back into fiat currency. I do want to note that it is usually the case that not all of the proceeds from ransomware are cashed out. And that's really because ransomware, as we've discussed, is a business. So the portion of the proceeds that are not cashed out are usually reinvested in the resourcing phase. Like any business, there are operational costs, whether that is staff, infrastructure or tools. Ransomware as a service organizations like Conti have to keep upskilling and learning because this is essentially an arms race with the cybersecurity industry. The reinvestment really has to do with paying affiliates, the software piece that you were mentioning, malware, um, but then also acquiring hosting providers and domain registrars and cloud service providers and all of those pieces. And once the operation is set up and the cash flow is there, then I think it's it's scalable in that way. And those very successful gangs are keeping more and they're probably having to invest a smaller portion of their funds in resourcing. But yeah, I, I really just think that it's, it is a choice made by those. It's like the business decision, right? How much to reinvest, how much to keep on the side. Um, and I think it, it differs to an extent from, from group to group or gang to gang. A great example of this can be seen in leaked chats from the Conti group. At one point, a user called Carter sent a message to the boss Stern about renewing services. Hello, Bitcoin is sent, 8 new servers, 1 VPN subscription, and 10 renewals have been released. Last week I ordered several replacements at the same time for Adam, Philip, and Frank, so it came out ahead of schedule. Two weeks before renewals for $770 worth of Bitcoin, 0.020. Please send Bitcoins to this wallet. Thanks. Although a completely mundane exchange, it carries a level of insight for us that is fascinating. Because remember, this is a purely criminal outfit. This is not the lone guy sitting in a dark room with black hoodies. It's a professional outfit. And they communicate just like anyone else would in the world of business. 
I mean, if you go through the chats, you see members complaining about burnout and going on leave. Ransomware as a service groups imitate legitimate businesses, but of course they aren't. They are criminal enterprises. The main Conti team had 62 people, but at one time reaching as many as 100, and they have to be paid. So how does a cyber criminal group pay its staff? Here's Burke from Prodaft. Actors often use a common wallet to DW up the money, or they don't change wallets even if they change teams. And Conti affiliates appear to conduct a sophisticated money laundering operation and avoiding obvious consolidation of funds. Despite this, Elliptic has identified affiliate funds being sent to a variety of services, including exchanges, coin swaps, and privacy-enhancing wallets, including Wasabi and Russian darknet market Hydra. And although money tracing has become easier, they are trying to do clean the money with Wasabi and the new swap applications, but it's really difficult to launder large amounts of money and to do first to pay high commissions to money laundering teams that only to do this. And that's why big teams like Conti and Wizard Spider are forced to pay high commissions to money laundering teams. Wasabi is interesting. You see, in 2020, Europol released one of its intelligence notifications about Wasabi, which, as Burke said, is a privacy-focused wallet. Europol scrutinised a process on the platform called CoinJoin, which merges coins originating from different users into a single transaction, and then redistributes these into standardised amounts on the other side, making it really difficult to unpick illicit from illicit Bitcoin, muddying the waters for analysts and investigators alike. But Wasabi themselves specify that privacy is not just for criminals, and that companies using fiat currency do not disclose all financial information. And so using tools such as CoinJoin to obfuscate Bitcoin transactions is completely legal and in accordance with the current legal framework. And here it's probably worth highlighting that according to Chainalysis, illicit transactions rose for the second year in a row in 2022, hitting an all-time high of 20.6 billion US dollars. But this is just 0.24 of all cryptocurrency activity. And so we come back to the message at the very start. On the 25th of February, when Conti came out in support of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Up until this point, Conti were the biggest and most successful ransomware group in the world. But that message changed everything. Two days later, a Twitter profile appeared with the handle at ContiLeaks. The first tweet just said Conti Jabber Leaks, followed by a link. The link contained thousands and thousands of chats between members of Conti, there for all to see. Over the next few days, more download links and more information on Conti's infrastructure was released and more chats. Now, I've had conflicting information about who was behind the leaks. CNN released an article with someone they described as a Ukrainian computer researcher. This person said that the reason behind the leak was that a bomb from a Russian airstrike had landed near the house of a family member. He went on to say that I cannot shoot anything, but I can fight with a keyboard and a mouse. Here's Alan Liska from Recorded Future. 
It turns out that these ransomware groups are really bad at security. They think they're really good at it, but they're really bad about it. We've seen the same thing happen now with LockBit, where there, uh, John DiMaggio, another security researcher, has done a leak of a bunch of the LockBit chats and so on. They, you know, He was able to work his way in to gain access. The Hive ransomware group, their servers were infiltrated by the FBI for something like eight months. And the FBI was able to offer, you know, victims decryptor keys and, and so on before finally taking down all of the, you know, the hive infrastructure. So no, I, I am really confident that this researcher was a researcher and not a, an affiliate. A lot of the ransomware actors are ego driven. And so there are ways for researchers to gain access by sort of playing on their ego and kind of puffing up their ego and, and, and getting, you know, getting access that way. They are surprisingly susceptible to these kind of moles. It, it is surprisingly easy to do that if you've got the patience and time. It's not something I'm good at because I just want to punch them all in the face. So I'm never going to be able to do something like that. But but somebody who can kind of put that kind of emotion aside can actually, I don't want to say easily, but with the right knowledge can gain access to these groups. But as I said, I have heard a number of people say that they believe the person behind the leak was an affiliate or Conti member who was angry at the management group for coming out in favor of Russia's war. Here's Juan from ProDaft. So eventually what we noticed was that maybe the main actor might be a group of Russian speakers, maybe Russians because of their direct and explicit support to the war. But affiliates group and other half of the group were not Russians and they were actually really pissed off to say the least. It became a consequence of the war indirectly but the entire operation got really disrupted with that message. But the important thing is to realize that eventually this is what leads to the demise of this entire operation. It's internal struggle between positions, whether are political or just people living in the countries that are having this conflict that divided the entire thing and eventually end up being leaked all this information that we saw about Conti. In a way, perhaps, it doesn't really matter. The important point is that the leaks happened, and they were dubbed the Panama Papers of ransomware by cybersecurity company Trellix, because they contained over 100,000 messages between members spanning almost two years. Here's Selena from Proofpoint. So... Uh, the original feeling I think everyone had was one of excitement. I know that's a little bit weird to say because they are criminals and we're talking about like, but it was great because it was a really tremendous opportunity to sort of take a peek behind the curtain, fill in gaps about the group, who was involved, how they worked with other malware operators. Certainly Emotet TrickBot were in there, but there were some mentions of other malware. And it was also kind of funny to observe that some of the criminals, some of the people that were participating in these chats complained about their salaries. They complained about human resources issues. There was griping about their work-life balance. I mean, I think there was a conversation about someone unable to go on vacation outside of Russia. You know, like it's just really kind of just complaining about, about their work, about the workplace and kind of similar to, you know, people in, in regular jobs. But it was a really great 
way to kind of see the org structure and see the personalities, I guess, behind Conti. These chats were a treasure trove, and the cybersecurity threat intelligence analysts and researchers began to pour over the information. The final tweet from at Conti Leaks happened on the 30th of March 2022, and it was a link to the CNN article with the words, See you all after our victory. Glory to Ukraine. So much of the information over these episodes came from these leaks, or reports by cybersecurity companies about the leaks. There is so much I've had to leave out, and so much more to discuss, enough for an entire book. But I think at this point we need to look at what happened to Conti. It all started in mid-April, just a couple of months after that message that pledged support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. By this point, Conti's dirty laundry was being aired in public as report after report was released by various cybersecurity companies and the news media. But the attacks continued, including one of the group's most brazen. They attacked the systems of an entire country, Costa Rica in Central America. The ransomware spread through governmental systems from the Ministry of Finance to Customs and from digital tax services to the Ministry of Science, Innovation and Technology. At the same time, a new government was about to assume office after an election. Reports that the government called the attack unprecedented in the country and said that it interrupted the country's tax collection and exposed uh, citizens' personal information. So it's not clear how they're going to resolve all this. Typically, what hackers do is they demand enormous payouts to re-enable the system, so the government might feel that it has to pay up. And it was the first time the cybercriminal group inexplicably called for the overthrow of a government. Conti continued to attack systems for the next two weeks. The new government of Rodrigo Chavez issued a state of national emergency, the first time in history this has happened anywhere as a result of ransomware. A second attack happened at the end of May and the health service was one of those sectors targeted. On early Tuesday morning, Costa Rica suffered a new cyber attack, this time against the service of the Costa Rican Social Security Fund. Social Security Fund Executive President Alvaro Ramos described the attack as violent, although he underscored that the databases of the institution in charge of the public health and pensions, which had been hacked before and not been compromised. However, he said the cyber attack will negatively impact caring hospitals across the country. So far this year, 27 Costa Rican public entities have endured cyber attacks, the most damaging being the one against the Ministry of Finance, whose platforms are still down. President Chavez declared war on those responsible. Although it's unclear whether this was Conti or Hive, another ransomware-as-a-service group, or both, Chavez described those involved as cyber terrorists. And yet, it's certainly true that the well-organized and methodical Conti seemed absent in this attack. Declaring war and for the overthrow of an entire government is somewhat unhinged. Some think it was a distraction. But trying to destroy the systems of a country as a distraction is a little over the top, particularly given that most people likely didn't know who they were. For me, it just makes them more visible. But a couple of weeks after this, Advance Intel declared Conti as dead. Just like that. Conti's websites were no longer operating. Some argue that one of the reasons for this was its support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which of course was followed by a significant packet of sanctions against Russia. 
so companies attacked by Conti stopped paying for fear of violating sanctions. But fundamentally, the war in Ukraine and then that message changed everything for the Conti group. Here's Juan from Prodaft. It is really important to go back to the point of this big conflict that exploded within the group. The fact that part of the group, the let's say the management part, actually declared their support so fast and so strongly to Russia, it basically gave the opportunity for conflict within the group, and so it was. Immediately when we saw that they published that part, we knew something was going to happen within the group. And it did. It ended up breaking them. But properly, it's not a surprise because at the end of the day, these are joint ventures or at the end of the day, money might be a driver for the US operations, the affiliates, clients. But there's also pride in human beings. And you know, there's few times in life that pride can actually go so blowed up as in a war. When we identify Russian-speaking groups, okay, we need to identify which type of Russian or which province or which country that Russian is being expressed. And we already noticed and we already realized that there were Ukrainian Russian speakers, there were Russian per se speakers. So when they published this, we knew it was going to be a big war inside the group, the same as it was happening on the physical space. It just got translated to cyberspace. After Conti disappeared, there was a dip in ransomware attacks. But, and there is a but, it was always going to be temporary. When we look at the history of ransomware, groups come and go. It's a constant game of whack-a-mole. When one group disappears, another takes its place. Here's Selena from Proofpoint. The leaks didn't change the fundamentals of the business, which was conducting ransomware attacks and making money by hacking people. And I think that it's still a business. <laughs> it's the, the economics are still there, right? So you still have these, a lot of these members or, or people suspected to be former members of Conti, these ransomware operations with ties to some of the former Conti members and the business is still running. So Conti are no more, at least in that specific guise. But Stern, Bentley, Moores, Mango and the rest, they haven't been arrested. And so, what will they do? Do they take their millions and sail off into the sunset? Or do they rebrand, join other groups, splinter away? Or for those more politically minded, perhaps even join attacks against those they deem enemies? So I think a couple of examples would be Royal Ransomware, Black Boss, the Ransomware. Those are kind of a couple of groups that... Conti members and affiliates have reportedly kind of splintered into. So the ransomware, it's still happening, right? Like the business is still rolling. And you have a lot of the initial access brokers that were responsible for facilitating a lot of the big time ransomware attacks. They're still here. They're still going. They're st <laughs> they were not really impacted by the Conti leaks. So the first stage that's gaining access via, e in, in our case, gaining access via email is still alive and kicking. It's just a matter of what is the ransomware that you're going to get? Which are those players? And and again, it's, it's, you know, Conti was a big one, but the splinter groups remain. One of the reasons Conti is still here, albeit not by that name, is because Conti was part of something bigger, much bigger, described to me as a cyber criminal conglomerate known as Wizard Spider. 
and Burke from Prodaft has been studying this group for years. The company is still operating and they are a part of the Wizard Spider because the Wizard Spider group is also known by the users Ryuk, Trickbot and Conti. They are first scored in 2017 and they are totally financially motivated cybercrime group and we have different visibility on each stage of the complex operation carried out by the Wizard Spider. And with these informations and knowledges, we can say that the Wizard Spider is a very large threat group with more than 200 members. The teams within this group work with different ransomware from time to time, but we have not seen tools as large as we have seen in the connection between Wizard Spider and Conti and developed for the use of just this team. There were those within Conti who followed through on their Pledge of Allegiance to Russia. On the 18th of March 2022, just a few weeks after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began, the Computer Emergency Response Team of Ukraine released a series of statements about a number of cyber attacks by a threat actor they call UAC-0098. Over the coming weeks and months, there were more phishing attacks by this same threat actor, UAC-0098. And then in February this year, the Threat Analysis Group at Google released a report called Fog of War, How the Ukraine Conflict Transformed the Cyber Threat Landscape. In it, they talk about this group, UAC-0098, and they said, We assess some members of UAC-0098 are former Conti members repurposing their techniques to target Ukraine. Here's Burke from Prodaft. When we look at the structure of big teams like Conti and Wizard Spider, we can see that there are a lot of small groups or lone wolves working with these teams. However, some of them may join teams like Conti as a team to pursue their own ideas and goals and to pursue their own political goals. For example, we have seen in the teams like Karakurt Ransomware, which emerged after Conti was rebranded, and that many teams within Conti have different methods and ideological goals. Of course, as we have seen in the UA0098 case, at the stage when direct targeting begins, it's necessary to know that there are sub-teams working with many different initial access brokers within the Conti team, and it's natural for these sub-teams to launch attacks with templates targeting Ukraine along with direct Russian invasion. And we've arrived at the final straight. We can see the finish line. As that's fast approaching, I want to go back to Conor Gallagher, the crime and security correspondent at the Irish Times, who wrote extensively on the Conti attack on the HSE. I wanted to know what he would ask one of these Conti members if he had a chance. Well, actually, I've, I, I have been speaking to one of them in the last several months i managed to, to track one down through a, a contact and was speaking to them online and trying to get their views about why they did this and what motivated them to attack a, a health service during a pandemic and you know the, the answer i suppose wasn't that surprising you know it's business this is a way to make money and they don't really care about who the 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 end user is especially if the end user is someone located you know in a western country that's not in russia so you know that was the, the simple but depressing answer and that's the point cybercrime just like any other organized crime is about money but connor did tell me that the silver lining from the conti attack was a greater awareness in ireland of the risks on an individual level and with business and government 
The Irish government invested in its National Cybersecurity Centre. That growing expertise and experience has assisted their Ukrainian counterparts, who themselves have faced repeated cyber attacks since the full-scale Russian invasion of their country. And that is really important. A greater awareness and investment in your cyber defence is worth it. Of course it's no guarantee, but it certainly makes the job of cyber criminals more difficult. At a policy level, there is movement. Zoe Brahmer, who we heard from earlier, works for the Institute for Security and Technology, and it was this non-profit, the IST, that spearheaded the creation of the Ransomware Task Force. The Ransomware Task Force was stood up in, in early 2021 with the goal um, to design a series of recommendations to really mitigate the threat of ransomware. And IST brought together, I think, 60 plus organizations, including governments, researchers, folks from big tech companies, academia, sort of the whole gamut to come together and, and discuss the best ways to mitigate this threat. In April of 2021, they published their inaugural report outlining 48 recommendations to deter and disrupt ransomware attacks and to help organizations prepare for and respond to attacks when they do occur. On a basic level, if we jump back into that white paper from Sophos, The State of Ransomware 2023, its research showed that organizations that backed up their data recovered quicker than those who actually paid the ransom. It also showed, rather surprisingly, that organizations that did pay a ransom doubled their recovery costs compared to those who used backups and it also took longer to actually recover. Now, there are some additional details in this data, and I'll leave a link to the white paper in the podcast notes. But the point is fairly clear. Back up your systems and ask for help from those who understand this world. Here's Juan from ProDaft. We know these groups. We basically been with them for years, looking at them, learning from them. There's not an admiration, but there's a respect on a sense on the adversary. And this is a big and complex group. So jumping into a situation like this, it's not gonna be easy for any person that might be affected. So the best recommendation we can get is contact us, let us help. We're here to do that. That's it for this episode of Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. I'd like to thank Connor, Burke, Selena, Alan, Zoe, Juan, and Jake. There's been a load of different and fantastic investigations into Conti and the ransomware industry more broadly. I'll share all of the research material from this episode in the podcast notes. For more information about our work here at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime, head over to our website, which is globalinitiative.net, where we release our latest research into organised crime around the world, including Ukraine. But until next time, this has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.